Whether you are looking for a space to host an intimate gathering or a major celebration, the Westmoreland Museum of American Art offers an artful venue for creating a truly amazing and unforgettable event experience. Don't miss the Bridal and Event Showcase at the museum this Sunday, May 21st from 6 to 9 p.m. Meet a variety of vendors, including florists, caterers, bakeries, jewelers, entertainers, and more. To register for this free event, visit thewestmoreland.org. I know how to swim, but I'm drowning. Can't seem to help what I'm feeling. Everyone you are listening to Nakedly Examined Music, a podcast about songs and songwriters. My name is Mark Lintonmeyer. My guest for episode 173 is Queen Esther. You're right now listening to Talkin' Fishbowl Blues from her debut album, Help Me, 2004. But she was also making music back into the 90s that we'll talk about. We're going to focus on The Whiskey Wouldn't Let Me Pray, a song from her 2021 album, Guild the Black Lily. Then Somebody Else's Baby from 2014's The Other Side. And finally, Trouble from that 90s project, Hoos Gal, which is her and Elliot Sharp. The album is called Mighty from 1996. We'll conclude by listening to a brand new single, Where Is Home, from her yet-to-be-released album, Rona. For more information, look at queen-esther.com. For more about this podcast, see nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. I would love your support, which will get you access to my special notes with lyrics and lots of things that I don't actually articulate on here. You can do that by going to patreon.com slash nakedlyexaminedmusic which also gives you access to a feed where you'll never have to hear me read ads on the show again. So I will have played a little of Help Me from Talkin' Fishbowl Blues, your first official solo album, 2004. We're going to get pretty quickly to the most recent full album, Guild the Black Lily, 2021. Can we say a little bit about the journey between those? I should say that Help Me as sort of that acapella soul harmony thing. Like that's not what that whole album sounds like. It's sort of, you had described it as stones, like Rolling Stones with Tina Turner singing lead. I believe your bio would describe that. Wow. I'm not sure exactly how to explain this. I didn't really run in the room and say, I'm a songwriter. I had some ideas floating around in my head and I knew people that could help me take it from point A to point B, but it wasn't me sitting around going, I'm a songwriter. Let me write this song. I consider myself to be, um, it's like there's a radio playing in my head and I'm just writing down what I hear. So you started as a singer doing musicals and things like that before doing this solo album? Is that, can you help me patch together? I could always sing. I mean, I grew up singing in church and I always had music running around somewhere in me, outside of me, around me, whatever. You know, it was fun. I don't think that I ever thought that I would ever do it seriously until I came to New York and, you know, the reality. What year about that? It was the 90s. I was here in the 90s and everything felt possible. New York was still New York. It was still gritty and cool. And I don't know, there were a lot of people running around doing a lot of really cool things in a lot of really cool different directions. Lots of music that was happening, lots of theater that was happening, alternative theater. So when I didn't get what I thought I wanted, which was just to be in the chorus of a Broadway show, then everything else kind of opened up to me. I mean, you really don't know the possibilities when you're in high school in the middle of the South and you just don't know until you actually get there and you look around and you meet people and you hang out and you listen and you start growing in all these directions that you never thought you would. I mean, that's kind of what happened to me. So I really started as a top liner, that is someone who writes lyrics mm-hmm. and writes melodies, but doesn't necessarily write the song. That's kind of what I did with Elliot Sharp when we did Huskow. He would write these different kinds of things he would just do on guitar and he would sit there and play it and play it. And then I would have an idea or a melody in my head and I was really into, and still am, I'm still into storytelling. I like the idea of unraveling characters or possibilities or visuals or feelings or whatever in a song. It's not really about, I don't know, some people write songs by committee and 
they pick a mood or whatever. And it's usually something that I've got stuck in me and I just have to get it off my chest. So that's kind of where the whole songwriting thing came in to focus. You've got something and I can hear a melody inside of it. And I want to tell the story of this or that or some moment that I think somebody's going through or something I've had to deal with. And then it comes out. And that was that whole album. That was the way that whole album happened. But after that, then I started thinking about songwriting in a larger context. Then I started wanting to write the songs. And that's where that album comes in. Talking Fishbowl Blues was really me going, okay, I'm going to write these songs and I'm going to see what this feels like. And so it was a lot of different directions to go in. But the producer that I was working with was really a rock and roll guy, Jack Spratt. And he really wanted to make an album that sounded like the Stones. That wasn't necessarily what my vision was, but, you know, he was driving the car. So that's the direction we went in. And then I saw that your album after that, 2010's What Is Love, is one where you're top lining it, where the producer J.C. Hopkins wrote a lot of the songs and is a much more traditional jazz, you know, strictly jazz thing. Whereas by 2014, The Other Side, you seem to be back to more of the Talking Fishbowl blues. That's the same formula, not even the same band, I assume, right? Not the same producer, but... No, no, no. I produced that. I did that album with J.C. because... I didn't really feel seaworthy as a jazz composer, as someone who would write the music and write the words. And I wanted to dip my leg into the pool before I plunged into the deep end. I would partner with other people or I was listening a lot and I was singing a lot of jazz. And I really wanted to get inside of it somehow before I started making those records, making any effort towards writing songs like that. And I wanted to let people know that I could actually sing jazz. And so that's what that album was really for. It was more of a declaration than anything else. It takes a really long time to make an album. It takes a really long time to make an album on your own. Hence the gap between Talking Fishbowl Blues and The Other Side. It is punishing, backbreaking, and the real reward It's having something in your hands that sounds like you, that you did, that is completely and utterly from your imagination. There's not much that feels better than that. So a decade between those two albums with What is Love in the Middle set us up for Guild the Black Lily. Where were you at by this point, 2021? By 2021, I'm pretty sure of myself as a songwriter and as a vocalist and as a producer. And I was working with a group of musicians that respected me and that listened to me and that understood what I wanted and that were committed to in service to my vision for the sounds that I was making. It's something that you really do have to fight for, especially if you're a woman and especially if you are a black woman. I think for the most part, until I really stepped forward with my own thing, my own sound, and had the reviews to prove that I was who I claimed to be. There was a lot of condescension and people were very dismissive and, you know, just kind of weird. Like, what is she doing here? Kind of a thing. Like your voice is so good. You must just be a singer. You must be a stand at the front of the band and croon, not a producer or, you know, not a producer. You can't be a producer. So when You really do have to prove it. And I don't mind proving it. You know, there's nothing wrong with proving it, especially if you can prove it. But you do have to prove it. The thing is, the proving it never stops. You are constantly proving it if you are a Black woman. In my experience, I'm constantly having to prove it. I'm constantly having to prove that I can sing, prove that I can produce an album, prove that I can write a really good song or a song that's better than just good. The audition is always in session with some people. They're just never really quite sure. And that's fine. Some people are going to just be that way of, "Mm, I just don't know, or I just don't believe you, or I just don't get it. Or, Well, speaking of a song that's better than just good, The Whiskey Wouldn't Let Me Pray, which sounds like a classic country song, but is original. Can you just set folks up to it, then we'll play it, and then we'll talk more about it. The Whiskey Wouldn't Let Me Pray. Well, I was watching a documentary about Sunhouse, and he said 
he wanted to be a preacher. That was his overarching goal in life. He wanted to walk the earth and preach the good word to the people. But he said the whiskey and the women would not let him pray. And I thought, wow, there's got to be a song in there somewhere. And eventually I wrote it. So this song appears not just once, but twice on this album. That's how much you liked it. Can you say a little more about that decision that you've got this version that we just heard and then we've got an acoustic use, you and mandolin. Is that right? Yeah. In my dreams, I saw a city on a hill. The sun shined on the live long day. So much light in this heart of That's Boo Reiner's on mandolin and the full band on the other version. Well, you know, the phrase gild the lily means that you're doing something excessive to a thing that doesn't need it. You know, a lily is beautiful all by itself. So why would you want to dump gold all over it? You don't need it. And I kept going back to singular instruments accompanying my voice on the album. So there were moments when I would gild the lily and I would have the full band, which is what you're getting with the Whiskey Wouldn't Let Me Pray, the full band version. But then I go back to just a vocal and a mandolin to show you that the lily didn't really need it. It's fine just as it is. Well, I'm happy for my purposes that there's some gilding on it because it gives us more decisions that you had to make as a producer to talk about. Can you say just about 
choosing this particular palette, right? Is he even playing? It's something with brushes. Is it all on snare? Is it a snare and a hi-hat? I couldn't exactly tell what, but there's definitely not a kick. There is a kick. Oh, okay. So it's just mixed with the upright bass that I wasn't really sure. It's like exactly with him every time. Yeah, there's a bottom to it. The instrumentation is delicately shaped around the song to serve the song itself. And nothing is running over the song and nothing's running over the vocalist. I think more often than not, people tend to sing at people. They don't sing to them. And with Gil the Black Lily, I really wanted to sing to people. I wanted to engage them emotionally with the delivery. I didn't just want to have something pretty happening as a oral backdrop. I really wanted them to feel things as they were listening. And I was hoping that the choices that the musicians were making were subtle enough to augment that emotional framework and elevate it at the same time. You had this reference, the Sun House was the choice of, this is a very, I don't want to say retro, but, you know, folk arrangement, you know, other than the electric guitar, which they didn't have volume pedals and things back in that day, or even electric guitars, if you're talking about, if we're talking about the 40s or something. Was there a particular historical era you were trying to connote here, or this is just, this is what the melody said to these musicians that you had backing you and like, okay, they chose to be that minimal. I wanted that minimalist take, but, you know, in my head, there's a lot of overlap with folk music, with electrifying the guitar, with, you know, the way that people listen to music, the way that people enjoyed music back in the day and with genres. I mean, everything is so cut and dried now. And I just wanted to layer a few things in. I think that there's a kind of layering or a kind of blend that happens historically that happened in music. And I think that's the way people listen to music, whether they realize it or not. It's not the way it's marketed to us, but I think it's the way people listen to it. I can think of many albums where there's a happy meeting of a classic country sound with just heavily reverbed guitar, you know, some swishing atmospheric thing. And you could add, you know, since if it was 1988, you would add swishing synths on top of that, perhaps even like within you, without you kind of that you too, you know, let's turn the reverb up and kind of put layers of gloss over it. We've got a, a gesture of that here just in using that electric guitar sound, but I mean, I suppose some people might find it a weird brushstroke in a painting, but to me, it's appropriate because of the times, because of all of what I'm alluding to. Back in the day with country music, in its earliest moments, they were completely and utterly inclusive. Everybody played this music. Everybody listened to this music. Everybody recorded this music. Early country music recordings were mostly done by jazz musicians. Talk about overlap. But most people don't really consider those things. In a way, I'm attempting to do that sonically by putting in a guitar riff that may not be in keeping with what you think folk is. But at the same time, that certainly was there. Yeah, I talked to the singer from Asleep at the Wheel recently. And so, you know, for that era that their music is referring to, yes, jazz and country, well, you know, Texas Swing, Bob Wills and the Texas Playboys being sort of his gospel, it was definitely one and the same thing. And we hear a little of that as this song goes on. As I know from like one of only a couple of jazz sort of seminars that I went to, uh, he's stirring soup on the snare drum. That's the way that you change things up a little for the last verse is by having him, instead of just playing eighth notes there, scrape the brush along the snare, which is definitely a jazz trick if I was educated well, the correctly. the drummer is Shirazette Tinnen, who is uh-huh. a tremendous jazz drummer. As a matter of fact, most of the musicians, if not all of them, on the session for that album are primarily jazz musicians. Hilliard Green is on bass. He was Little Jimmy Scott's MD for 20 years. Shirazette Tinnen plays with her own group, as well as Dee Dee Bridgewater. She's an extremely accomplished jazz percussionist and drummer. Jeff McLaughlin as well, the guitarist. He's really something on a stick. So in keeping with tradition, really, I filled in all those blanks with jazz musicians when I made this country folk album. Any particular arrangement decisions that you made, production decisions that occur to you? What about choosing when to put in the backing vocals and when not? Any sort of thoughts about your decision making there? I think that this album is the antithesis of a lot of what I was hearing from other singers and what I was hearing out in the world. I think that 
a lot of singers tend to oversing. There's a lot of melisma and there's a lot of focus on what I used to call vocal gymnastics. And I wanted to make an album that didn't really play into any of that, that was just more focused on an emotional delivery and just really full of feeling and having all of the musicians in service to the song um, instead of their own individual performances. Some people turn to certain genres to find that, but I think it's just a state of mind. Most people, I think, like to be sung to. You know, once upon a time, before there were record labels and before the music was marketed to people as such, people would sing to each other. You know, we didn't have a great deal of entertainment the way we do now. There were no movies or television. So people learned musical instruments and you sat together as a family and you entertained yourselves by singing to each other. And I think that kind of emotional placement has been lost in many ways. People don't know what it's like to have someone look them in the eyes and sing them a song. And that is really what I wanted to do with this album. So what would determine, for instance, you got a very prominent uh, lower harmony here, which I could see, you know, then listening to the solo version that doesn't have the harmony. I would be singing the harmony along with it because that it just becomes part of the song. And as with this song where you chose to sing against yourself there to sort of make the whole thing sound like it's a bundle of Queen Esther, as opposed to some of the ones on the previous album where you have one of the guys in the band, presumably, you know, but a male voice fill that in to sort of have that connotation instead. On the previous album, The Other Side, the song Will You or Won't You, for example, is about a relationship. So it really needed a guy to sing it with me. Will you or won't you want my true love? So maybe he's wondering the same thing. And having him sing harmony, you don't really know if it's my song or his. Kind of like the Leuven Brothers. It belongs to both of them. So with this album, I just wanted to underscore and accent certain moments that seemed important, that were emotionally resonant with the backups. I didn't necessarily want to double them or have them mirror or have a whole choir. Or add a whole choir or something, which would work in here musically. But if you're having, you know, this is one person's discussion of their journey, then having it just be you harmonizing yourself makes makes more sense. I recall one of my early bands feeling like I always love harmony vocals. And one of the guys, guys saying like, well, yeah, but unless you're singing to some girl or something like, well, then, no, I guess I want to just say what I'm going to say. And I don't need the choir on top of that. That would be too much gilding the lily. Exactly. That is exactly right. Well, let's get the second song out there to talk about a whole different sonic palette here. We've talked about The Other Side, the 2014 album, the album before this. That is a very country album overall. The song that I had picked is one of the few straight up rock tunes, but then it has some kind of funky musical theater chords in it. Oh, no, this is not a Huey Lewis song or whatever. You know, Can you say a little about somebody else's baby before we hear it? That's funny. <laughs> Musical theater chords. Why do you think they're musical theater chords? Uh, just that it's some chromatic movement as opposed to, you know, in the whiskey wouldn't let me pray like that stays to its idiom. You didn't just like, let's move up a half step and do some dancing over here. But this one has this kind of slide. And it really gives it an extra dimension. Like probably the Rolling Stones do that kind of stuff occasionally. But like, that's not what I associate with them or any other kind of like blues rock interpretation. That's really funny that you would say that. I guess that's true. You know, nothing <laughs> learned is ever wasted. And when you have so much in a good rue, things come out unexpectedly. So that's probably something that I did. And I didn't even think about it because I wanted to add some drama. Mm -hmm. You know, it's sort of a agony aunt relationship advice kind of a, a song anyway. That's interesting that you heard that.
fun song but before we start talking about it i'm gonna tell you about our sponsor nebia a company backed by some of the biggest names in the silicon valley including tim cook they produce the nebia by moen quattro showerhead it is designed by former tesla nasa and apple engineers who spent years researching and developing a superior shower experience that saved water now the quattro is the world's Best high-pressure water saver shower. There's four spray modes with two powerful high-pressure spray modes in addition to the popular Nebia Spa Spray, satisfying all types of shower preferences. Each mode saves you 40 to 50% of water compared to traditional shower. I have revealed to you my plumbing problem that I'm going to get fixed pretty soon, but that actually makes it so when I run my shower upstairs, some of the water still comes out of the the bath faucet, so I'm not actually getting the water savings or probably even the water pressure I'm supposed to, but I still really like the Quattro. I use it instead of my downstairs regular shower because I like that spa spray. It is just you just put your face right in it, and it is just a, I don't want to say mist, because it is, is more powerful than that, but you can turn the temperature all the way up. It is just really quite addictive. So this is a, a relatively low-cost way to just upgrade your life, give you something to enjoy. It is so easy to install. The Quattro in particular, it's, a, it's really about a three-minute process, like changing a light bulb. It's available either as the fixed rain shower or what I got, the hand shower version. Both are made with recycled ocean plastic and available in five beautiful finishes. And Nebia offers other sustainable bathroom accessories like the quick dry earth mat, shower shelves, shower curtains, hooks, bath mats. Nebia by Moen Quattro starts at just $119 exclusively on Nebia.com. And Nebia gave us a special discount for our community. Go to Nebia.com slash N-E-M and use code N-E-M at checkout to get 10% off all of these Nebby products. Again, go to nebia.com slash N-E-M. That's N-E-B-I-A dot com slash N-E-M to check out what they have to offer and save 10% with the code N-E-M. 
So say a little about your choice of palette this time that we've got two guitar bass drums with the little thicker chuck 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 we've got you know it has a little bit of that stones feel just because sometimes both guitars do a lick you know one in the right ear one in the left ear and they're kind of fighting each other a little bit rather than this is strictly the rhythm guitar this is strictly the lead that's just classic rock and roll straight up i mean really rhythm section two guitars what more do you want and it's a kind of flex in a way just in case you thought i was some folky i yes i can sing rock and roll and i can be just as ballsy as anybody else i think often what makes it so that it doesn't have that dual guitar feel is because one of the guitars is played by the singer who has to just hold down chords because they're singing like maybe he doesn't even know how to play guitar that well exactly but i mean somebody's (laughs) got to actually play the guitar and i think that rhythm guitar is completely underrated it's so important you know if you've got a really good rhythm guitar player you can ease up on the drums even Mm -hmm. they can really carry a song And with that duality of a rhythm guitar player really digging in on that and a lead guitar player, I mean, to me, that's just classic rock. Well, and in this, they're both, you know, holding down just by having different guitar sounds and being panned differently, a rhythm through a lot of it. And then when you have the actual solo guitar come in later, that's definitely a third guitar. That's an overdub. And while it is dancing around over the last verse and things, the other two are still there holding it down. Was that just a matter of, well, that's what you do in the studio. But of course, it was the same guy doing the solo as who did the main electric guitar part. Actually, I do believe that was Ronnie playing guitar who passed away recently. Ronnie Drayton. Okay. Yeah, Ronnie Drayton, uh, wire puller. It's funny. I had many, many long conversations with Ronnie Drayton about country music. And he really wanted me to include him on the more country aspects of what I was doing. And I kept veering him towards rock and roll. Uh, His mother was from Florida and she listened to country music nonstop when he was growing up to the point to where it was something of an embarrassment. (laughs) But later on, of course, he ultimately understood where she was coming from and how that tied into everything else he was doing. But we had the most interesting conversations about the bluing of the note and dissonance and rhythm guitar and how all of that played into country music and how country music is blues music, really. He was really something. Well, I see at least four different people play electric guitar at various points in this album. I mean, was this sort of the live band that you were working with at the time or this was a unit put together just to make this record? Actually, that's a bit of both. The musicians on this record were people that I was gigging with. And then I thought, well, let me bring this person in. Let me bring that person in. Once you get into the studio and you start messing around, then you start thinking about what serves the song. What can I do to make this song sound as good as it does in my head? I'm not gigging with Ronnie, but I could call him up. And once he heard the song, he heard what he could do to make it swing, make it really, really something. So that happens a lot sometimes, especially if you live in a place like New York and you can access people who are really dynamic. You just kind of run in all these other directions. So I know, you know, you're just credited with singing on this to write some of these like that chromatic the thing, don't listen to me. Du, 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 du. You know, it seems like you must have been sitting at a piano or a guitar. How do you actually, what are the mechanics of you writing these things? I just move between piano and guitar and I figure out what I want, but I don't really feel as though I'm finished enough as a guitarist or a pianist to play it. So I usually call somebody else and go, okay, you play this because I know that they'll make it sound fantastic. It's like a, between a meow and a roar. Where in the process did you, you know, you started as a singer, you said, but so what was picking up these instruments later when you wanted to try to write songs that like, oh, I better learn some actual chords on an instrument? Or did you already have sort of the music theory stuff from your your voice training that that was a gradual thing? Well, that's interesting because I'm classically trained and I had to learn how to sight read when I was a kid. Okay, so you had to play piano from... And we had a piano and an organ in our house. So I knew my way around a keyboard enough to know chords and to find phrases. But what I was hearing in my head wasn't necessarily connecting with what I knew musically. So I had to find a way to figure out how to get to those chords. But I didn't start there. I started with, you know, a melody 
and with top lining and these are the lyrics and you kind of gradually grow into that. It's like you just pick up what you need along the way. So does it still seem at this point that it is your brain writing it or is some of it like, especially not knowing how to play keyboard very well, I was probably better writing on keyboard the worse I was at, you know, when I really didn't know my way around because you sort of just stumble across things. Like, what if we add another note two above this and another note two above that? Like, oh, I'm, now I've discovered sevenths and ninths and, and, and elevenths without having necessarily the music theory. Just it becomes actually a little more interesting than if you know your way around. I think not knowing your way around is a better way to get into good trouble, if that makes any sense. If I knew all the 14th chords and all that stuff, I don't think I would be writing the songs that I do. That being said, during the pandemic, I picked up a ukulele and I began to play jazz songs and songs that were way more complicated than what I could come up with on piano or guitar. So I started growing more towards playing and then writing songs. But really, the songs come to me and then I unravel them. It's not the other way around. I don't necessarily pick up an instrument to find a song. The song finds me and then I pick up an instrument to suss it out. So a regular soprano ukulele or like a tenor one where the strings actually go in order. This is what bugs me about the my da da da. They're like, I need to be able to move up the neck and the notes go up. I can't have a high string on the on the bottom. That doesn't make any sense to me. I actually have a. (laughs) Two tenors and a soprano ukulele. And I have a parlor guitar because a big guitar feels, a regular size guitar feels like a yacht. It feels huge. I'm used to having small things, working with scaled down guitars and whatnot. It's its own planet. Nobody told me that. I think I was talking to one of my guitar teachers and I said, oh, you know, I'm playing the ukulele. And they were like, don't do that. Don't do that. And I thought, why? It's so cute. It's non-transferable it's skills. <laughs> it's not. It's its own entity. It really, really is. I mean, it's fun. And now it's turning into something that belongs to me. And it's kind of a comfort. Maybe it's because I picked it up during the pandemic and it kind of saw me through. And the songs that I wrote on it were so emotional. I don't know, but I've attached myself to it. So now I feel like I can't really put it down. But I do have to get back to the piano. The action in my piano is falling and I have to get it fixed. At the very end, we're going to talk about the album that you've been working on during the pandemic. So are we going to hear some of this? Like, no, this ukulele is integral enough that it actually needs to be on the recording. I'm not just going to have a guitarist place it. Yeah. Okay. I actually got Jay Walter Hawks to play ukulele on one song and I'm playing ukulele on the album as well. And most of the guitar players that I know that say I play ukulele, they get a tenor and they string it up. You're not really playing ukulele. You're just playing a bass that's high. Before we put aside somebody else's baby here, you know, we haven't really focused on the lyrics. Can you say a little about this sort of this, the form of advice song here? Can you say a little about how that determined what the structure was going to be? What exactly you were going to be saying? I had a friend who was going through something problematic with the person that she was with. After a really frustrating phone call with her, I wrote that song. And that's basically it. Sometimes songwriting is really therapeutic and it's just one of those things that you have to get off your chest. I wasn't sure right at the beginning, right? You've set this, got a handle on him like a fist in the glove. Well, that fist is going to swing hard enough to make you sit and cry. Like you're connoting domestic violence there, but I think you don't have to reveal this if you don't want, but it seemed like that was not in the literal content of the song. It's like that this person is drifting away from you but you're connoting something that is more startling than what's actually happening. I was trying to think what the opposite of a euphemism is. I don't know, hyperbole? (laughs) Not really, but... My mother taught me how to read when I was three years old. I started writing stories and making up stories and collecting stories and listening to other people's stories and absorbing them and this kind of thing when I was a little kid. And um, I guess it never really stopped. I love words. I love playing with words. I think they're really important. I think lyrics are really important. I don't know. I put things like that in there, and then I don't think that anybody's going to necessarily dig into it. This is an artificial situation here. (laughs) And then someone does, like you. Yeah. I mean, the idea of this person getting physically hurt by the guy that she was with was very, very real. Okay. And it was everything that they were ignoring. But what can you do? 
you don't necessarily give good advice to be able to say, I told you so. But at the end of the day, there's some advice columnist who loves to say, you knew, ah. um, you knew hindsight is 2020. You always want to be able to say that someone told you, someone advised you, someone said, this is the way it is. And you can ignore it if you want to, but this is what the deal is. There's a lot of that in that song. I mean, if you take it apart, I really am telling a story. And throwing it in a way that it still doesn't distract from the general, I said Huey Lewis before, but that, you know, just as a way of saying it's a good time song overall. Like it's a very catchy Jesse's girl sort of eighties to me eighties, just because that's when I was young and impressionable, uh, listening to this kind of rock and roll. Well, I tend to write songs that sound happy and really upbeat and positive, but they're not. I think if I wrote the song that's really down or depressing or whatever, I'm not so sure anyone would listen. So that's just my way of pulling people in. And eventually they're just bopping along and thinking, well, wait a minute. I mean, it sounds like a happy song. Well, let me pick on the second verse <laughs> similarly. Just uh, So you've got a similar, you, you switch it around. He knows who he lives with. He knows who he got. Got his world on a rope and it's tied with a knot. That rope is a leash with the handle on either side. It opens wise to let him in. And then you're talking about he's fallen down the rabbit hole. You've went from a hand in a glove to he's on a leash, but he can get off the leash. But getting off the leash means he goes in something. I wasn't quite sure of like how you were connecting those. We got the leash and then we got Alice in Wonderland by the end of it. How you thought about that transition? I think that relationships are a two-way street. And ultimately, both of them can't play the victim because they're doing it to each other. And if this relationship is the wonderland that you think it is, it can turn ugly in a snap. That's the thing that you have to remember, or at least in that situation anyway. I should have pointed out the line that connects those, the good times roll, they take their toll. Wait a second. We use the Dr. Seuss rhyme to make it dark and then you can take it to, so what Wonderland could be, could be actually something quite nasty. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, look, we've all been to Six Flags and seen that kid throwing up. It's all fun and games till you have a hot dog and a milkshake and get on that, you know, the great adventure and and the roller coaster. You can have too much of a good thing. Well, I guess that's what that tension brings that by having that chromatic thing, it opens wide to let him in. I would expect, you know, sort of by the rule of fours, (laughs) like just resolve it right there. But no, you've got one more. So it's like three stanzas instead of two to get you into the chorus. Well, you know, Lotsies, that's a musical theater tradition. <laughs> a Lotsy is, you've seen it with Bugs Bunny. Things happen once and then things happen twice. And then the third time is when they get you. Once introduces it, the second time establishes it, and the third time knocks you down. That's a nice thing to graft into this, again, the expectation in a rock and roll thing that, no, you've got three and then four is the fill out, is the fill into the next section. Any thought about how you produced the solo coming in and then let's continue to have that guitar? You were saying that's Ronnie squawking periodically over the last verse. And how you were just wrapping this up as opposed to like, you know, adding another two minutes of solo or something else. Some other, a big choir could come in. There's lots of choices for how you were going to end this. I really wanted the guitar to wail and to take the place of, you know, the suffering that I figured would happen. And it did. So that's sort of a stand in for what was about to happen. Sort of a premonition, I guess, you know, the inevitable heartbreak, which is why I sent the guitars in that direction. But at the same time, I mean, it sounds upbeat, you know, kind of positive, right? It's rock and roll. Got to keep it. All that other stuff. That's between me and whoever's actually opening up and listening and looking at the lyrics going, well, wait a minute. And just the choice to end that with this instrumental held note. Somebody else. 
as opposed to fading it out or something, which I guess would be the, if you're really doing an eighties throwback tune, let's one more time and then have it fade out or something like that. But you know, at least this way you can do it live this way. If you want, if you want to, you don't have to make up some other ending or having like a, you know, something to really punch you. No, we're just going to have a, a whole note basically that we're staking on without you singing we're not some baby you know putting your melismatic your acrobatics yeah no <laughs> over the end of the song yeah because this yeah if you're rocking it sort of invites oh the, the guitar soloed let's have the vocal solo and actually we are going to have a little bit of that in our third song trouble you mentioned the huskow this collaboration between you and elliot sharp the album's called the mighty 1996. Yeah, do you want to say a little more about that project before we hear the song? This was a, a really free, it was just a wonderful moment for me as a songwriter. I think it really started me down the road of what would it be like to write songs, to just purely write a song and come up with an idea for a song or tell a story or use an album to tell a whole story or an arc or something. I don't know. Everything got really expansive after I did this album with him. And I moved away from writing melodies and I moved towards ideas and concepts and songs and, you know, all of these bigger things. It wasn't just melody. Yeah. What about the, the song Trouble in particular before we hear it? I think this is probably my favorite song on the record. It's so mood inducing. It immediately takes you to a different place. Stone, let it pass upon my table, can't leave. 
So I had, I think, only heard of Elliot Sharp within the last uh, year or so that I had Melvin Gibbs in the show. He had done a collaboration with him. Really interesting uh, New York guitarist. How did you even decide to do this project with him? I don't remember specifically where I met Elliot. I think we met at a party. We were introduced by Melvin Gibbs, I think, if I'm remembering correctly. And he said something like, we should write songs together sometime or something like that. You never know if anything's going to happen or going to come of it. I think I came over to his house and it was the middle of the day and I was hungry and I was telling him, why don't I make something for us to eat? And I think I made fish and grits the first time we got together. It might have been pork chops, smothered pork chops. But I was cooking on this rickety stove that he had that looked like it was from the 60s. He lived in this building in the Lower East Side in Alphabet City. And I was just cooking and he was sitting there at the table playing. And while I was cooking and he was playing, I was listening. And I'd say, play that section again. No, that one, put that first, put that one second. That sounds good. Play that again. And no, that third part, put that first and put that second part first. And by the time the food was done and we were sitting there eating, I was writing down lyrics. And if I remember correctly, the song Trouble, if not one of the first songs that we finished, as we were finishing eating, he would play through the song and then I would sing it. And he'd go, that's a really good song. Hmm. And we kept going like that until we had a whole album. So he was just coming with these licks off the cuff that do, 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 do. It's not like he came in with a bunch of riffs that he didn't know what to do with. I would be cooking and he would just be sitting there and then he would just start playing and I would listen and I'd go, I like that. That sounds really good. And he'd go, okay. And then he'd play some more. He'd play something else. That part that you just played should be the beginning of the song. You think so? Yeah. Well, what about this? I like that, but that should be the bridge. That should go here. And then this should be the beginning. And okay. So I've only heard two songs off of this. Were all of them bluesy in, in the way in the way that Trouble and this other one you shared with me? Kind of, yeah. I mean, I think... They called it alt blues. Mm -hmm. I don't know. People didn't really know what to do with that album because Elliot was one of those downtown noise boys and no one had ever heard of me. I'd never made an album. I'd never recorded anything with anyone. So I was sort of an unknown entity at that time. Well, and I should just insert the little spot here. Lights upon my table getting... And then he's got these funny jazz chords I wrote. <laughs> you know, he's got a few, a few that, oh, this is not just blues. This is blues by a clever jazz person who has more vocabulary than just the 12 bar. And even just this first line that there's a little hiccup in it rhythmically that you know that like, okay, I'm using blues gestures, but I'm doing something weird with it. And by the time you get to him slinking around with his slide and, you know, I guess that's the sort of the Jeff Beck thing. If you're weird enough and creaky enough on your leads, then it's no longer blues. It's, you know, something avant-garde. Yeah, I think if you've got all of those chords in you, they're going to come out some way or another. I think more often than not, blues is just a reflection of who you are. And whatever it is that you are, you can't help but put it inside of it. So it's a very special little album, I think. Well, and more so than like the whiskey wouldn't let me pray because it's whiskey and a dirty old town. It's got, you know, some of the idiomatic stuff. And here you're sort of thinking in a blues way. And even that first trouble you know it's kind of like as if you're bending a string on a blues guitar like that's what you're doing with your voice it's a little whale so were the lyrics to this do you even remember at this point more again i'll use that word idiomatic because i don't know what else to say but like i'm emitting some blues or was there a specific story you know it, it doesn't seem like this is as heavy on the storytelling as the other two songs we've considered there is a story 
behind it, I suppose, I think the lyrics are really more commiserating. Old Black folk down South like to say things like that. This is upon me. This is on me. Almost like a physical presence, almost like a thing that's walking beside you down the road with its arm around you. I wanted to give you the feeling or the sense that this thing is alive and it's more than just a feeling. And this is some of the damage that it can do. It's not just a mood. It's in my bones and it's wrecking me. It's not, it's not just wrecking me physically. It's wrecking my life. I see bad times and all the wrong it brings. I wanted to make trouble this four dimensional thing. All right. So most of it is feeling out sort of the emotional contours of this. The story, I mean, you've got trouble as a man. I know I have to love and leave. Like that's a little story. That's at least a reference to a story. That's all you need in order to set up a situation. And then the rest can just be how it feels. Your commiseration, as you say. Any thought about this is one. So at the end of the song, you've got a little bit of vocal improv. Do, do you feel like given that you have the chops to oversing in the way that you have checked to when there's only you and a guitar or, you know, maybe two or three, two guitars, he eventually is dubbing here for most of the song. Do you feel like it would even be called on to do a little more or, or more so in a live setting than on the recording here? It's like turmeric. A little goes a long way, especially when it's really sparse. And everything's out of the way. A flick of the eyebrow is 10 feet tall. So I wanted to be very careful always to be in service of the lyrics in the song and not necessarily what my vocal chops can do. So there's not a live version of this somewhere where uh, that goes, you know, to five minutes long, where he does a little solo thing and you answer with your voice, you know, the plant and page thing or, you know. (laughs) We did a lot of that when we performed it. I mean, we performed this album live around New York a lot before it came out and then after it did. But I don't know. I've never (laughs) I've never seen any bootlegs (laughs) of anything like that. But that's some things that we would do live. Sure, you could go for it. But, you know, the establishing shot, I didn't necessarily want to do that. Uh Uh-huh. It is your instrument. If you enter in a jazz environment, if it becomes in a live setting and then it enters the jam part, like, well, what else are you going to do? I mean, you could just do a note that is sustained. You could do, you know, the kind of stuff that you do on this recording, which is just let's play a little with the rhythms. But once you leave the realm of serving the lyric and now we're in the jam section, like it's hard for it not to get, I don't want to say tasteless, but like to get excessive. Excessive. (laughs) No, that's a that's a good way of putting it. So does any of that persist in your current stuff where like, okay, the live band is playing and now I'm going to essentially do a vocal solo to answer the guitar solo or you're just ideologically just against that? I think what happens on an album and what happens in performance should be two completely different things. You know, performance changes with mood, with instruments, with, Mm -hmm. you know, what you ate for breakfast. I mean, everything affects everything else. And everybody's dynamic affects everybody's energy and all of that good stuff. So what I'm giving in performance shouldn't necessarily be what you're getting on an album. You can control it and shape it and turn it into what you want. And it's so permanent. It's a real snapshot. So I like to make sure with the recordings that it's understood that this is the song and this is the way I wanted it to sound, or at least this is the way it sounds in my head. But when it's live, it's completely organic. It can grow and turn into so much more. And the fun part is letting it. Yeah. Do you have the urge to re-record any of your older tunes or even the tune, you know, from this 2021 album? Because like we've done things with the band with it and now it's a different thing. And it'd be nice to capture that as well. It'd be great to do a live recording. It would be great to go on tour for a year or two and do a live recording that has a bunch of old stuff, new stuff, and stuff that I hadn't even considered before, like stuff that's on Elliot's, the album with Elliot. And there should be room for that, maybe in a post-pandemic world. Yes. To wrap this up, let's introduce, instead of that alternate future that may yet come, what has actually been happening, recording on your own, you have this album, Rona, that apparently will be out sometime in the next year. Where is Home is the song you had picked. It's the only one I've heard off of this. Let's Introduce it and then we'll say goodbye here. I wrote all of these songs during the pandemic and I just couldn't let them go. I wanted to do something wonderful with them and put them out into the world. So that's really what this is. This is songs that were about COVID, about my friends who passed away, about living in New York City when it emptied out, which was 
so weird. Everybody was just running out of here. (laughs) I remember having a conversation with a friend going, where are you taking off to? Where are you going? And they were like, I'm going home. And I'm like, I thought this was home. I thought you were home in New York. No, I'm going to my mom's house. Well, thank you so much for coming on here. It was a a pleasure to immerse myself in your work for the past couple of weeks. I'm glad you really enjoyed it. I can't wait for you to hear this record. I'm really proud of it. And I've got more music coming, actually. I I got the New York City Women's Fund for um, music, theater, and media. They've given me enough money to make my next record, Blackbirding, which I'll spend the summer recording. All right. We'll have to look forward to that. Here is Where is Home. So long. Thanks so much to Queen Esther. Remember, you can find her stuff at queen-esther.com. And you should find out about this podcast, especially if you're subscribed to the Partially Examined Life podcast. Maybe you're listening to it on that feed. Get subscribed directly to the Nakedly Examined Music feed on nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. Or better yet, go to patreon.com slash nakedlyexaminedmusic to support the effort and get the ad-free feed. In any case, if you are following along with the Naked the Examined Music doings, you'll hear my next interview with Portland musician Drew Grow, and after that with Richie Ramone, one of the surviving Ramones, and finally with amazing Nashville songwriter Bill Lloyd, who has played and co-written with everybody. You'll hear it all. Make sure to go to Naked the Examined Music to follow what we're doing on a consistent basis. I hope you're all doing well. Keep on musicking. Until next time, this is Mark Lindsay-Meyer signing off. Help me to walk out that door. Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts.